0: the nation magazine. This is start making sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, who'd want to see a movie about Harvey Weinstein. But there is a new movie about him. It's called she said about the two New York Times reporters who broke the story of his crimes. Actually, it's not about Harvey. It's about the system that protected him. And actually, it's pretty great. Katha Pollitt felt the same way. We'll talk about it later in the hour. But first, Fintan O'Toole on insurrections past and future, that's coming up in a minute. It's been two years since the January 6th insurrection attempt and the House committee investigating those events has published its final report, writing about how to protect democracy in the future. But there's another way to look at those events, suggested in the New York Review by Fintan O'Toole. If you were planning a future coup, What could you learn from the failure of this one? Fintan O'Toole is a columnist for the Irish Times and the Leonard L. Milberg Professor of Irish Letters at Princeton. His most recent book is We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. It was named one of the 10 best books of 2022 by the New York Times, The Atlantic, one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, The New Yorker, lots of other places. We reached him today in Dublin, Fintan O'Toole, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, John. It's us to be with you. Well, you say the biggest failure of the January 6th coup attempt was that they didn't have their story straight. The story they had, of course, involved summoning a violent mob to Washington to invade the Capitol and forcibly stop Congress from certifying the election of Joe Biden. What they wanted to happen next remains a little murky seemed like maybe if they could create enough chaos, maybe Trump would just remain president, or maybe the Supreme Court would declare him the winner, or maybe they'd hang Mike Pence. Uh, No one seemed to be really sure about the plan, or even if there was one, why didn't they have their story straight?
1: It's a great question, John. I think we have to start with, with Trump himself, of course, and his personality. What we know about Trump is that he regarded any attempt to manage him or you know to put a plan in place as a an affront to his freedom as the you know the special one whose instincts would be the things that would govern what should happen this is really built into the sort of narcissistic authoritarianism uh, that he exemplified right which is that that actually you know s- somebody giving you a plan is is putting forward the idea in a way that they can control what it is you're going to do. And, and we know that Trump was very deeply resistant to that from what happened with the election that he actually won. You know? <laughs> I mean, this is a guy who, who refused to plan the transition to his actual presidency in 2016, 2017. Chris Christie, couldn't have to a nicer guy, uh, was head of his of Trump's transition team. Put a huge amount of work into, you know, here's all the hundreds of things we have to do to take over. Here's what we're going to do in the first 100 days, all that stuff, you know. And, and Christie describes in his self-pitying memoir um, arriving at Trump Tower, you know, with his vast amounts of paper uh, and ring binders and literally dumped. I mean, literally put in the dumpster, you know, <laughs> because Trump will not, be bound by a plan and so i suppose coup 101 is like have a plan right you know (laughs) have a sense of the sequence of events and trump wasn't willing to do that i think there's a second reason why he wasn't willing to do it which, which is of course that he operates as a mafia boss and a mafia boss assumes that people that he's put in place underneath him are his minions and will simply do what he tells them. And if they don't, he can lean on them, you know. And that's of course what he tried to do. So so uh Trump in a way wasted a lot of time by by leaning on election officials, uh, by leaning on, on judges. I mean, we we know that there were certainly discussions about you know when when the Supreme Court went against them, Trump's, Trump's immediate response was to say we should have leaned on them more, you know. <laughs> uh, so that that mentality, you know, that sort of tuggish mentality, which is which is we, we know is very much part of his makeup, I think also in a way made him misunderstand the transactional nature of power, uh, in what is still after all something of a democracy, right? You know that, uh, and particularly with the courts, was it in the interests of a Supreme Court which had just acquired a supermajority that would allow it to you know fulfill the fantasy of the right for so many years? and overturn Roe versus Wade, was it in their interests to take the huge risk involved in an obviously very badly planned coup? No, it wasn't. And, and Trump never got that. And I think the third reason, and this is maybe the most complex one, but it, it is that Trump was brilliant at a certain kind of messaging around violence. If you go back and you look at the primary campaign and then the uh, the, electoral, the, the presidential election campaign in 2016, he calibrated over time how, how would you urge people to commit acts of violence you know so the first time he does it when there's a protester he basically tells people to beat them up realizes that's not a very good idea you know uh, and then he develops a sort of joke structure i describe it in 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 the essay really you know which is don't beat up that guy but if you did he would deserve it <laughs> or that guy deserves beaten up, but don't do it. You know the, the sort of uh-huh. double um, message. Yeah, and it's all about plausible deniability, and it's all about sort of assuming that your audience knows what you mean, but you don't want to be caught saying it. And this is one of his strengths, right? So this is definitely something that he uh, has been able to mobilize. And of course, it it reaches its grotesque crescendo with Charlottesville. You know, good people on both sides, all that stuff. But it's not very good when you come to actually implementing violence, you know, on a large scale. You have to tell people what it is you want them to do. And you have to tell them what happens after they do it. I mean, in your introduction, John, you said this exactly, you know, and I think you're absolutely right, but it's like which is it's what happens next, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, you you hang my pens, you hang Nancy Pelosi, who who knows what, but what then? You know, and and it seems very clear to me that Trump had absolutely no idea. So I I read January 6th in a sense as an outburst of rage at the failure of the coup rather than the coup itself.
0: And you say that a successful coup would have had a very different story, not disruption and violence. What would a better story have been?
1: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, there, there are a lot of very strange characters, of course, coming out of the woodwork around Trump at, at this time, urging him to do different kinds of things. You know, Mike Flynn coming back, Sidney Powell. Some of them are completely absurd figures. One of the people who was involved in this kind of critical meeting that took six hours in the White House, where they were kind of urging Trump to seize the um, the ballots in the most contested states, uh, is a guy called Patrick Byrne. And, and, and Byrne actually put forward what, what was quite an intelligent, plan, or at least idea, right? And what what Byrne was saying is, no, 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 you know, you cannot be, be being seen to subvert the election. That's not what we're doing. The election has been stolen through foreign interference. And so what we are going to do is create a drama, public drama, in which we are the ones who are insisting on the votes being counted. So you go in, you seize the paper ballots in whatever places you want. And you conduct, I mean, Bernard was saying, you know, you conduct this live on TV, right? So you're you're counting the ballots. One one of the strange things is like that Trump, Trump was always going to do this, right? So so he had loads of time with people around him had loads of time to plan it. I mean, there's not a single person I think who ever expected him to concede defeat when he lost. So he, you know, he 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 should have had a plan. And we sort of know historically um, what works in these in these circumstances. I mean, look to the invasion of Iraq, for example. Like right? you you produce a lot of documentation you produce a lot of apparently credible looking charts and figures and whatever like a 500 page pre prepared document which shows how this terrible interference in our election took place and remember because it's all fiction i mean you can you can make it up any way you like you know <laughs> but you can just imagine how if if you prepared that if you if you Got it out to Fox News. If you got, you know, the the, the right wing media, maybe even some of the centrist media, you know, because um, we know that happens with with the Iraq stuff, you know, which is create a narrative, right, that there, there's a huge problem here, uh, that we've had we've had this foreign interference, and we're going to fix it.
0: Trump did have this theme for a very long time: the idea that our system is rigged. We recently learned that he told Jared Kushner to trademark the phrase "rigged election." So, uh, very Trumpian thing to do, but you're 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 arguing that well, rigged election isn't quite right. It should it would be better to make it defending democracy. Absolutely. So, 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 what the story would be is here's all this
1: evidence. Now, you have to get your story straight first of all about who is interfering. <laughs> One of the idiocies of the coup attempt was that they couldn't make up their minds, right? It was, you know, they were digging up Cesar Chavez one minute and it was the Chinese Communist Party the next minute and it was, you know, God knows. I mean,
0: well, it there was the off. Italian, my favorite was the, Italians, the Italian <laughs> satellite. I mean, what was uh, it? The
1: CIA, the, you know, so so the idiocy was, you know, just sort of rag bag, which, which never cohered into a a halfway coherent story. If I could but- just interrupt
0: here, you have a wonderful phrase to describe the large variety of arguments they had. You said their execution of this plan was quote like a dog chasing a flock of pigeons. <laughs>
1: yeah thank, that's what thank you about, for that you, you know when you see that and, and of course the dog can never focus on one pigeon because it it, it sort of its eyes keep being drawn to all the other ones you know and uh th- so that's you know very basic sort of drama theory or whatever narrative theory would just tell you you know you, you you have to have a story which is internally consistent and they didn't have it but to go back to the thing of what would you do differently I think you you certainly could have a coherent story, you know, particularly since it's fictional, particularly since you have a committed right wing media which would amplify this very quickly, and it wouldn't need to hold together that long, right? It, it just needs to get you to the point where you're doing a physical recount of votes live on TV, right? With 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 military personnel, with you know, with the whole the the, the movie really kind of playing out there, you know. Exactly. The story is we are defending democracy. What is wrong with counting votes? Now, they've already decided how many votes they need to get. Right. And exactly what the logistics would be of finding these votes is is not clear. But that's certainly one of the questions I think you would you would think about if you were if you were planning this the next time.
0: One of the most memorable uh, stories we learned from the January 6th committee was the scene where Trump throws his lunch at the wall, leaving ketchup dripping down the wall. That was December 1st. What had provoked that?
1: That really was provoked by the the, the final failure of his of his legal campaign, right? So, so it, it it does tell you how sure he was that his judges, as he would have seen them, with not. Entirely without reason, uh, we're going to you know do him a solid. They were, they were going to do what the transaction was. I mean, he he gave them these these seats for life on the Supreme Court, and surely you know the thing they owed him was to rig the election for him, you know, or to, to, to to declare the election, to to order recounts, whatever you know. And and so that that sort of rage, I think, tells you how how deep was his idea, this mafia don idea, really, that that you know he could have his will enforced through proxies in the legal system.
0: The tweet where he called on his followers to come to Washington uh, for an event that would be, quote, really wild, he sent that tweet in the middle of the night, and you say we need to focus on what were the events, what happened that night that led him to conclude he had to summon the mob rather than the other kind of more plausible, more reasonable ideas. What what was going on before he sent his middle of the night tweet?
1: So, so that follows on this extraordinary six-hour rolling meeting uh, in different parts of the White House, in the in the Oval Office and then in the private quarters, which comes about because um, Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn and Byrne blagged their way into the White House. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 it you couldn't make it up to you know use the cliche, but you know it, it really is they blag their way in, they've no appointment to see Trump. They but they manage to get him, you know, and and then Trump's more organized um people like Mike Meadows come in to try to stop them talking to him, and there's there's almost fisticuffs. Uh it's this kind of bizarre event. But that's the meeting at which the the intruders as it were, Flynn and, and Byrne and Powell are putting forward this plan right now. You know, what are we gonna do now? What we're gonna do now is you're going to declare foreign interference. You're going to evoke an executive order made by Obama that says in the case of foreign interference in the elections, that the president has the right to, to, to take action. And you're going to appoint Sidney Powell as a sort of prosec- special prosecutor to, to get, get the people who are doing this. And you're going to appoint Flynn well, Bar- Burns' term for it is field marshal, right? Now, this is funny. And then you're going to send in the, you know, under Flynn, you're going to send in the the army uh, or the National Guard. It's not quite clear, you know, exactly who's going to do this, but they're going to seize the paper ballots in the most contested uh, areas. So this goes on and on. And, and Trump listens to them and seems to have been convinced by them because he did say at that meeting that he was appointing... Sidney Powell, a special prosecutor, he he seems at some point to have concluded this was his last shot. I guess, because you see, we don't have Trump's account of this, right? But, you know, so what's going on in his head? But I would guess that after all the excitement of that, he's got to by, by Meadows and by Giuliani, who just said, look, this is nuts, you can't do it. And I think at that stage, he realizes that there's only one thing left to do, which is which is violence, calling his people and that's what he does in 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 the early hours of the morning you know he he issues that infamous tweet but i think it tells us that january 6th is i wouldn't quite say an afterthought but it, but it is a sort of last resort you know it's 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 a, it's a roll of the dice after the game in a, in, a, in effect is really over because i think what trump probably realizes is that it's too late to put in, put in place the plan he should have put put in place i mean the, the plan i mean should have i mean if you were if you were doing a serious coup with a real chance of of success.
0: Another one of your most fascinating arguments is that it was a big mistake to say from the beginning that he knew the election was going to be rigged and he would never concede. What he should have said was, if he lost fair and square, of course he'd concede. But he had to confirm that that's what the vote result actually was. Exactly, exactly.
1: So and and this was Byrne's argument. I think Byrne is an interesting figure in this again, you know, because Byrne says, look, no, no, you know, the 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 story you're putting forward is that if the if there's a hand recount in these areas and it shows that indeed you lost, so Trump would announce that he would say if I lost fair and square I I am I'm I'm going peacefully, I'm going to accept that Joe Biden won you know I will accept the result of the election. but of course Trump had precluded that by, by basically saying he was never going to accept the results of the election uh, and again, a a sophisticated plotter would always have presented him or herself as you know the defender of democracy, the person who of course, you know, just wants to do right by the American people and and wants to make sure that what they have chosen is what happens.
0: There's one kind of significant footnote to the aftermath of the failed insurrection, which was that Congress returned to finish its work late the night of January 6th, and 147 Republican members of Congress voted for what we call the fake electors scheme. Do you consider that to have been a better story about defending democracy? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's too
1: late. Right. So so it, it it should have been done before the Electoral College met. Right. So that's that's the point at which you you do this interference. But it does show and, and this is why I think it's not just speculative you know, to think about what what might have happened and what might happen again. It does show that there is a there was a huge nexus within the Republican Party, which was prepared to go along with the coup. I mean, the fake electors might be slightly more sophisticated-looking than, you know, than 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 guys with horns on their heads paint, <laughs> uh, through, through 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 the Capitol, but it 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 has exactly the same effect, right? Which is which is which is to overturn the result of the election, and indeed, it's actually much more much more productive, right? So you 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 have a mechanism through which Trump is declared to be president, which the the proud boys didn't have, right? And so he got this support even after everything had happened, you know? I, I, I mean, I don't know how you feel about John, but you know, it, it always, I understand the the ideological madness of these people. I understand how far right they've gone. Can't understand the personal thing, you know? <laughs> these people are out to kill you, you know? <laughs> they're, 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 they weren't going to stop at Mike Pence, you know, like, the, 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 like the, the sheer terror that was involved on that day. This this unleashing of this violence on anybody who's going to get in their way. And yet, within hours, as you say, I mean, they, they go back and they effectively endorse this coup. I mean, and, and then, of course, we'll, we'll refuse to impeach Trump for his, for his role.
0: Fintan O'Toole, his article about January 6th, titled Dress Rehearsal, appeared in the New York Review. Fintan, thanks for talking with us today.
1: real pleasure, Jeff.
0: Want to see a movie about harvey weinstein that's what i thought when i heard that the film she said about the two new york times reporters who in 2017 broke the harvey weinstein story that that film had just started streaming this week but it turns out the film is not really about harvey it's more about the system that protected him and it's really good for comment we turn to katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Her work has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. Her most recent book is Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. We reached you today at home in Manhattan. Hi, Katha.
2: Hi, John. It's nice to hear your voice. Well,
0: she said started out as a book that won a Pulitzer Prize, I was prepared to be bored by the movie, because don't we already know everything we need to know about Harvey Weinstein in that bathrobe at the Peninsula Hotel? But on screen, as we follow the reporters Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, played by Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan, I found the movie fascinating and moving. What did you think?
2: I thought it was completely gripping. Um, I think we make too much about, uh, oh, we already know this story. I mean, most stories, you know, you uh, you know, the story of Hamlet. Everyone dies, <laughs> yes,
0: yes. but
2: you still go. There was a lot of new information in there for me because I didn't follow every twist and turn of the story, and I didn't read the book either. So uh, the the way they got the story was was fresh material to me. And I think for a lot of people who went to see it.
0: A lot of people knew about Harvey's crimes, but nobody would talk on the record, especially the women who he had made really famous, like Gwyneth Paltrow. So what are our intrepid reporters supposed to do at that point? They decide to focus instead on the employees, the women who work for Harvey at Miramax, but none of them will talk either. The real drama of the film is how they uncover this vast network of enablers who not only help Harvey commit his crimes, but even more important, help him keep them hidden with big cash settlements and non-disclosure agreements, NDAs. So the problem becomes how to write about the NDAs, how to disclose the non-disclosure agreements, and how to get the women who signed them to agree to violate them.
2: Yes, and that's very gripping. It's a lot of journalistic and legal maneuvering. But I love the way each of these women is portrayed so differently. You know, some of them have been driven out of the film business. Some of them have been really quite traumatized for a long period of time. One of them, her husband doesn't even know because she was just so ashamed and wanting to put the whole thing behind her. And I thought that was really interesting. It was a very sympathetic portrait of these women that also seem true, very true to life.
0: The stories of the, the victims and how and why each decided to talk is really the heart of, of the movie. And I think it's something that works better on screen. It's something you can do better in a movie than in a book or, or a newspaper uh, article. And that's one of the reasons to see the film
2: yes it was quite exciting and a film can do that in a way that a book cannot um and there were a couple of things i want to mention that i liked very much um one of them was that often in movies about women in women in journalism there's a suggestion that she uses her sexual wiles to get the story um there's none of that here there's no flirtation between her and between the two women and anybody and another thing that often happens that didn't happen here is that you see two women competing. Um, and here they're very supportive of each other. And that was good, too, because we don't see enough of that, especially now. I feel that portrayals of women are are very negative in all these kind of not exactly. I don't want to say subtle, but because uh, they're not. But, you know, it's not like they go out and kill somebody, although they do that, too. In reality, <laughs> but it it was good to see two women on the same page, cooperating, caring about something more than their careers, which are never you know never mentioned. It's never like oh we're going to get the Pul- Pulitzer Prize for this. It's it's all about helping women with Harvey Weinstein. <laughs>
0: and um, and each of the, we learn that not only are these women married. They have husbands, they also have kids, and they have to deal with issues of motherhood and babies and being exhausted by being mothers.
2: Yeah, Yes, it was also realistic. And another thing I liked, which I think is also more realistic than people think, is that their husbands were very supportive of them. Their husbands were doing a little more of the domestic stuff than would have been the case before the the wives got caught up in this story. Um, And it was okay. There's never the moment, which there so often is in a movie, where the husband says, I'm having an affair because you're never here. (laughs) There was none of that.
0: The heart of this movie is the victims, especially... Ashley Judd, now older, we haven't seen her for a long time, and it's clear that she's an older woman now. She is agonizing about whether she should go public with the story of how she had to fend off Harvey's advances in the Peninsula Hotel years ago. And played by herself, she finally gives Jody Cantor the okay to use her name, and this is kind of the climactic moment in the drama of the film and Jody Cantor played by Zoe Kazan breaks into tears because now it means the story can run it'll be on page one of the New York Times and lots of other women will be empowered to come forward crying is something that Woodward and Bernstein did not do when they got the goods on Nixon from Deep Throat but in this film, it seemed it was completely okay that Jodie Cantor burst into tears. I thought, what did you think?
2: I, I felt the same way. Um, I think, you know, crying gets such a bad rap, especially when women do it. When men do it now, it's, it proves that they're human and good. Uh, <laughs> women, are, women are not supposed to cry. It's kind of flipped around in that way. Um, but, you know, you cry for all kinds of reasons. You're happy, you're sad, or just the excessive feeling, relief. And that's what those tears were, and I thought it was both very realistic and did not take anything away from the characters and their hero and their heroism.
0: So the system that protects and enables Weinstein is mostly male, but not exclusively, and that's another one of the key points the movie makes. There's Harvey's attorney, Lisa Bloom, the daughter of Gloria Allred, of course, the famous feminist attorney, and she is a. She is fierce in attacking Harvey's victims. What do we know about the real Lisa Bloom?
2: Well, Lisa Bloom was a feminist lawyer, and she, until she took this case, uh, and uh, where she played a a, a, a terrible role, um, was was accused of plotting to undermine the accusers by by giving out in an underhanded way, information about them and photos of them being happy with Harvey Weinstein after these, uh, the events that, the, that he was accused of. And Ronan Farrow, who is the New Yorker writer who was also covering the Harvey Weinstein story, he claimed that she would report information that she got from his investigation back to Weinstein. So that's not good. And how
0: unusual is it for accused rapists to have feminist
2: defenders? This is the most common thing in the world. If you're an accused rapist, I say this to all you people out there, (laughs) you you want a woman lawyer because it defangs, it helps you because the jury is thinking, oh, well, she's on his side. So maybe he's not guilty.
0: And we see that in the, the trial in Los Angeles, where I live, which was in October, The title of the movie and the book, She Said, of course, this comes from the conventional defense in rape trials. It's just a he said, she said situation. She said it was rape. He said she agreed to do it. And in fact, in the L.A. trial, when the wife of the governor, Gavin Newsom, Jen Newsom, testified... Uh, that she had been raped by Harvey Weinstein. His attorney said that she was, quote, just another bimbo who slept with Harvey Weinstein to get ahead in Hollywood, close quote. That's horrible.
2: It is horrible. And it's shocking that a a lawyer can say that and not feel that this will redound, redound against his client, that the client has such a vulgar and sexist lawyer. Now, I think it's still very, very hard to prove rape. Um, In the case of the governor's wife, Harvey was found not guilty.
0: You're absolutely right. So, quote, just another bimbo. And this was in October, three months ago.
2: Yeah, it worked. It's shocking. Of course, it's not like he's going to get out of jail anytime soon. So there's that.
0: Yeah. In fact, let's just review where we stand with Harvey. He's now serving a 23-year sentence in New York, Uh, after being found guilty of criminal first-degree sexual assault and third-degree rape in Los Angeles trial. Uh, More recently, he was found guilty on three felony counts, counts, including forcible rape, forcible oral copulation, and forcible penetration by a foreign object. Uh, Monday of this week, the judge in LA announced Weinstein will be sentenced for those uh, convictions on February 23rd. That could be 18 more years which are likely to be served we are told concurrently with his new york charges universal is now campaigning to get zoe kazan nominated for the oscar for best actress and carrie mulligan for best supporting actress carrie mulligan has already been nominated for a golden globe This is a revealing challenge to Hollywood. Will they honor the film about their own corrupt system of power that protected rapist studio executives who made films that won Oscars and appeared at the Oscar ceremonies?
2: Well, Hollywood loves to think well of itself, doesn't it? It's always patting itself on the back for some good deed. So maybe they'll just offer everyone in this movie the Gene Herschel. <laughs> <Mediterranean>. <laughs> so um my husband and i saw this movie together and we both liked it a lot but um my husband felt that the emphasis placed on harvey weinstein as a perpetrator has made it seem as if he's the only one um everybody else is less culpable because harvey weinstein's mm-hmm. sins were so egregious I don't agree with this, um, but it does remind me of this this uh, thing called the heart the Marie Curie effect that when Marie Curie won the Nobel Prize, actually, she won it twice. But when she won it, people thought, oh, this is going to be great. Now, women, people will take women scientists seriously and women will get more jobs and in, in in science. And the opposite happened. What happened was a woman would go up for a job and they would say, well, she's good, but she's no Marie Curie. <laughs> So here is like, well, okay, he's a rapist, but he's no Harvey Weinstein.
0: <laughs> of course, the movie makes the point of say, saying, if this could happen to powerful and world-famous actresses, imagine what happens to ordinary working-class women on the job.
2: Yes, but you know, it wasn't that their being um, famous actresses didn't really protect them at all. Um, Some of them never got another job. A lot of them were psychologically traumatized for decades.
0: And the end of this movie does not say the Me Too movement arose and now everything is okay. It very clearly does not say everything is now okay. What it says is this is the story of how easy it is for predatory men in power to be kept there by a corrupt system of people who either look the other way or protect them, and how much work it took to break through the system, how hard it was for two New York Times reporters to do that, and that these people were, these two women were really good at their jobs, and it pays tribute to them and to the people who talked, and it does not say, this solved the problem.
2: Right. And that's very important because I think some people do think, oh, yeah, me too. That was 20. When was that? 2017? 2018? Well, we're over it now because now you can't do those things. No one would do those things now. But that's not true. Men still do those things and they still get away with it.
0: The film is She Said. It's streaming now on Peacock. And it's available as pay per view on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, and Voodoo. You can read Katha Pollitt's award winning column at thenation.com. Katha, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thanks so much for having me, John.
0: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation Magazine, is co produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Rene Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.